Welcome to Tim Stodds FM, a place to share new ideas, speak freely, and continuously find ways to live our best lives. And now your host, Tim Stoddart. What's up, everybody? My name is Tim Stoddart. Welcome to Tim Stodds FM. Thank you so much for joining me. Before we get started on today's episode, I have a quick announcement to make. I'm now launching a new audit program on my website, timstods.com. If you go to the website and you fill out uh, one of the forms, there's a whole bunch of them on the site. More specifically, if you go to timstods.com contact and you fill out your information, I will send you a free in-depth web audit. You're going to get an analysis on your own website, whether that's a business website, a personal brand, you have a clothing line, uh, if you have a nonprofit, whatever the case may be. I'm going to send you an in-depth analysis and audit as well as a whole bunch of different improvements that I think you can make to expand upon your your online presence. This is not a trick. It's completely free. Uh, I'll, I'll send it to you. You and I can have a conversation. I'm more than happy to kind of get you started uh, in the right direction. I'm looking forward to that. I'm really excited to uh, to get to work with new people. And once again, it's timstods.com slash contact. Now, today's episode was a real highlight, not only for my podcast, but in my life. I got to sit down and have a real in-depth conversation with my dad. I got to talk to, to my father for like an hour and record the whole thing. And it was it was really great. I got to ask him some questions that I guess I've always wondered just in regards to uh, his upbringing and what it was life like for him growing up and what it was like being the first American in our family. And he and I got into some real in-depth conversations about what it's been like for him to be an emergency responder, a paramedic. My dad's been a paramedic basically my entire life. I, uh, I consider my dad a hero. And he would never actually say that about himself, but not only is he a hero to me, but there's people walking the earth right now that wouldn't be walking the earth if it weren't for my father and the thousands and thousands of emergency medicine first responders that do extremely tough work on a daily basis and they don't get enough credit for it. This conversation was was truly amazing. I, I don't know how else to say it. It was it was an amazing experience. Um, I know, I know that you will appreciate my father's words. So, with all that being said, let's get started. I give to you my dad, Ian Stoddart. Have you ever been behind a mic before, Dad? Um, no, I don't believe I have. I've been in front of the criminal cameras, <laughs> but never been behind a mic. I'm always ahead of the next guy. Yeah, they're interesting. It takes a while. Honestly, being behind a mic was a little easier than being in front of a camera, though. That was scarier. For everybody listening, I'm in Philadelphia. I'm at my father's house. It is two days before Christmas, and I'm going to be interviewing my dad. Hi, Dad. Hello. How are you guys? What I thought would be cool was to sort of get to know some things about you. So where were you born? It's going to take some memory here. Uh, Temple University Hospital. I thought you were born in Jocelyn Hill. Negative. I was a Temple boy. No way. Temple baby. 
Born and raised. That's right. You know, I was Temple. I was um, almost born in the car. No, but I'm then just made it down to Temple University. And Uncle Frank was born in Scotland, right? Yes. And so you were the first Stoddard to be born in America. First generation. What's that like? I, I never really think about it very much, to be honest with you. Although I say it a fair amount of times, so I'm just not sure I've ever put thought as to what exactly that means. No, I think nowadays that, you know, if you looked at it back in the 60s, it was a big deal because transportation was so much more difficult. Nowadays, people come over and go back all the time, so it's not that big a deal. I was having a conversation with Brian the other day, and uh, Brian, uh, cousin Brian, mm-hmm. and he was talking, um, I think he was talking about voting in a different state. I can't remember what the conversation was, but I remembered that he said I wouldn't be able to do that because I'm not a citizen. Is Uncle Frank a citizen? Yeah, so Frank uh, became a citizen about 25 years ago. Okay. Um, and originally you were able to keep dual citizenship with Britain, uh, with the United Kingdom, but he didn't. He gave up his citizenship to become an American citizen, as did my dad. Oh, okay. My dad had to also. What, speaking of your dad, my grandfather, what was your earliest memory So two things. Let me go, I want to go back real quick with the thing with Frank because it was funny when he got his citizenship. Um, he was coming back from Canada one time, and he was coming across the border, and he had an American passport. And they said, "Where were you born?" And he said, "Scotland." And they said, well, "Why do you have an American passport?" And he had to go through the whole process of explaining it to him. And the customs guy was trying to test him, and they said, well, "What kind of questions were you asked when you had to get your citizenship?" And Frank became very snarly and he says, "Oh, really tough questions like." who was George Washington, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. So my mom and dad always were upset about that thing, and he wasn't getting back across the border with them. Um, my dad, my first memory of my dad. So it's kind of a generalized memory. I have this memory of us being in these camper trailers over this big cliff and us hanging our feet over the cliff. And I've asked my mom before about that memory, and she remembers what the trip was. Uh, but it's the first time I remember... Having a memory? Does that make sense? You don't remember where you were? No. You were just camping out over a cliff somewhere? With more than one camper trailer. So it was, it was two families. Two or three families. Um, and I've seen photos of it somewhere, but I'm not sure where we were. What about your brothers and sisters? Did you guys all get along growing up? You know, always. Not quite like you and Alex do. You know, we fought a whole lot more. Yeah. Uh, but we always got along. There was a little bit of a division because Frank and I went to the same high school. So we were pretty thick, thick as thieves. And Doug, my brother Doug, he ended up going to a different school downtown. So that kind of separated him on his own little bit of a journey. Uh-huh. And then Moira did her own thing for the same reason, went to a separate school. Plus it was a big age gap where Frank and Moira are 10 years apart. So they wouldn't you know, naturally hang out the same as, as Frank and I would. I wonder when you guys talk about stories back then on what it was like of Philadelphia and what Philadelphia has kind of turned into. And it was always a big city, but now it's kind of like this huge metroplex. You know, you look at the skyline, there's like new skyscrapers going up all the time. And I look at, uh, I think there's this restaurant in the Fort Lauderdale airport. I can't remember where I saw it. Um, it's like a, a Philly based. Oh, no, it was that diner that we went to uh, that you and you and I and Lisa went to last time I was home. Oh, the coffee station? Yeah, wherever yeah. it was. And there's um, the picture 
of down the Benjamin Franklin Parkway and uh, the William Penn City Hall was still the tallest building. Mm-hmm. Do you remember looking back thinking that there was like a difference in how it felt or did it still feel like a special place to be? Yeah, so the the feeling is the exact same. Um, I remember when they had those arguments about whether or not they were going to allow buildings to be built to be taller. taller than City Hall, yeah. William Penn's at. And that was only 1980. Is that what it was? Yeah, that 80? was... Uh, because that was when the curse started. Because I think that, I think the Phillies won the World Series in 1980, and then that very next year they put the the first building taller than William Penn. That's why they called it the Curse of Billy Penn. Yeah. So, so if it was 80, um, that would have made it even a hotter topic because that would have been right after the bicentennial celebration, uh, which obviously brought a lot of attention to the history of Philadelphia, and then they wanted to change that that landscape. So although the land, the skyline itself has changed. I don't think the premise of Philadelphia has changed. So the Keystone things are still the same. Mm-hmm. The Fairmount Park entrance into the city, um, the vibe you get, mm-hmm. the whole idea of the view from the art museum up to City Hall, you know, that can never be changed. And that's a trademark of Philadelphia is yeah. that, that view up Broad Street. It's when I, when I go places, because I've traveled a decent amount, as have you, there's always this weird, I don't know if I'd call it weird, but people that are from here always feel very connected to it. And I still go places saying like, no, it's the best city. It's like the best place to be. Why do you think that is? Like, why is it that it's such a tight knit community? Why do you think that we all feel like so passionate about being here? Yeah. So I, I get the impression that it's very similar to Bostonians. Like I feel like mm-hmm. if I went to Boston and I said, I'm I got that Philly, same vibe from Boston too. Yeah. There'd be that same brotherhood. Uh, and I think it just has to do with basic blue collar mentality and yeah. blue collar family roots. You know, they have all of them have that that same principle that family comes first, and then you have community, and then you have the idea of unionism. You know, and that unionism, I don't just mean in the labor force. I mean well, I gotcha. as a group, as communities, as mm-hmm. sticking together. You know, I think that's very strong in this area. Do you think that that is part of your strong work ethic, or do you think you get that from your parents? Uh, probably just from my parents. Probably specifically my mother. You know, she was a extremely hard worker. Up very early in the morning, worked a whole lot of overtime. She's a um, tough lady. She's the yeah. She was the tough one. <laughs> and we had a different culture then. You know, it was very clear that if you want something, you have to go work for it. It's not being given to you. Mm-hmm. You know, and it came with the same idea that you always respect the elders. You don't talk back. You know, there were certain fundamental structures that just were. You know, and you didn't question them. You just did them. So I think that made a big difference. But I also don't think I have an extremely hard work ethic. I think Get out of here. I don't. I think it's the same as anybody else's. No way, Dad. I got my sister sitting next to us. We would both agree that you're like the hardest working person I've, I've ever met. Now, Lisa puts me to shame. You think Lisa works harder than you? Oh, absolutely. No doubt in my mind. But, okay. So then maybe from our standpoint and our memory, it's a little bit different just because of the circumstances and i know that this is like a public forum but it's like a, a big part of of our family and and alex and i having very young parents and i I've, i would put myself in a in your position and think that when you don't have another option other than just to wake up and like work hard just to make sure that you can keep moving and get by week by week that it's i don't want to say it's easier but when it's just your only option is just to work hard. Do you think that has something to do with it? Or do you think you would work that hard anyway? 
No, I think having kids very, very young was a big part of that. Yeah. Well, you know, I say that though, but I worked hard even when I was 13. You know, I had a job down at the Weaver's Way co-op, things like that. So I think that was just always bred in from my parents mm-hmm. to do that. And then having kids so young probably exacerbated it a bit. Where I knew I had to continue to pick it up. And we had options of not doing certain things we did. Like we could have decided to stay in the city uh-huh. and have a cheaper place, but we wanted to get a place that was a better environment for you guys being raised. Yeah. So there was pressures there to do things that were better mm-hmm. in raising children that caused more financial stress, which caused the need to work harder. What's it like raising kids? <laughs> uh, it's a blast. You know, each phase has its own ups and downs to it. Yeah. There's different phases that are more fun than others. Um, there's ones that are more challenging than others. What do you mean? You know, the the phase of zero to three, you know, is very different parenting-wise than it is from three to seven. You know, and then seven into 15 has its own challenges. Each phase has its own challenge. And I'll never forget when they had Will Smith one time when he had his son at the same time, he had just bought a new car. Mm-hmm. And he goes to pick up his new car, and they gave him this two-hour tour on what you had to do and what the owner's manual said. And then he said he went from there to pick up his kid, and they went here. And they just <laughs> handed it to him, you know, which he thought was insane. There's no rule books. There's nothing. It's just here. So you have to figure Here's it out. Here's this person. Here's this person. So each one of those phases doesn't have a book with it. You have to adjust as you go. You know, but your mother gave some of the best advice where... Her mentality was, you can't raise kids. You can just guide kids. They're going to do their own thing. Mm-hmm. They're going to make their own mistakes. You can't make decisions for them, which, as you guys remember, drove me crazy because I was a control freak. I have a lot of problems with that too, Dad. Right. Where so, she had the mentality of just give them a direction and let them go. I don't want to use the word hardest, but in those phases that you talk about, like what do you think... I guess speaking specifically for me or for Alex or just maybe it's a general question, which phase do you remember being like the most challenging? I'm not sure how to answer that because it's not necessarily relative to you guys because while you're being a parent, you also have your own changes your own of stuff. individuality, right? Mm-hmm. And because of the high school I went to and not going straight to college, I also I always had a tremendous amount of pressure on myself to push for different things. So I was the chief of the ambulance, I was the township commissioner, I was doing all of those things. And I don't think any of those things were to benefit me. Specifically, they were for me to try and compensate for things I didn't feel that I had accomplished. So when you combine that with being a parent and trying to do the right thing for you guys, that was the most difficult time because I was putting the most pressure on myself at that time. Being the commissioner? Yeah, when I was commissioner and chief of the ambulance, um, trying to work two jobs, trying to still be involved with you, uh-huh. teaching, doing the soc- the coaching of the soccer. Um, Alex is swimming. So it just had a lot of stuff back to back to back. I'm going to interrupt real quick. I talked about how, like, when kids ever become a part of my life, and I was talking about that with Jules, and I mentioned soccer, and she said, ew, no, we can't have soccer players. Wow. <laughs> That's exactly what she said. That's and, a heart stop. And she moment. made a face, yeah. Soccer was like a huge part of my upbringing. And I've had this conversation with other people just about sports in general and, and lacrosse as well. Like the lessons that I learned from competition, I'll bring with me everywhere. And especially the losses. I don't know if you remember my uh, championship lacrosse game against Council Rock so- uh, South. We were 
I mean, we had four middies that game, and they came back with like a minute and a half left, and then we lost it in overtime. And I still have that picture that Coach Shoop uh, put in the frame. And like the feeling that I got from that loss is it's like so powerful. I can still remember that and how awful it felt. But then on the other side, I remember we played uh, Valley Forge Military Academy. And because we were such a small school, you know, and Valley Forge Military Academy were they're like military kids. And we won that game and the elation that I got from it. So sports as like a kid really played a, a big role in my life. And do you remember the soccer game where I scored the last two goals to tie it because you pulled me out of goal? Yeah, of course. Yeah, that game. I took you down from behind on that game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was fun. I really, really loved playing sports. You mentioned being the chief of the ambulance. When did you decide to be a paramedic? When you were two, I guess, or one. So we were at the local pool, and there was a child in the pool that had drowned, and somebody pulled the kid out of the pool and started doing CPR. And I thought to myself, if that was my kid, I wouldn't know how to do that. Um, so that started the journey. What pool? Orland. A kid drowned in the Orland pool? Yeah, in the baby pool. They revived him. Oh, okay. So, no, it was a near drowning, but it was an event, an event that had enough commotion that I noticed it. Mm-hmm. And I thought I couldn't do that, so I went and I got my American first aid. I forget what they called it back then. Um, and that went with CPR, and then I joined the ambulance. Then I became an emergency medical technician. And it was that for a year. That's an EMT, right? As an EMT. Just for yeah. people listening, what's the difference between an EMT and a paramedic? So an EMT is a basic life support yeah. person. They can do all of the the basics. Um, although that role is really changing now. They're allowing them to do more things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of bandaging. They can use AEDs, CPR, um, things down, down that road. Can like they para- put needles in? No. So a paramedic... Yeah does all the advanced medical stuff. Yeah. So they can administer drugs, they can put IVs in, they can intubate people, um, they can do a lot of things with the cardiac monitor, and it's, it's more advanced. It's a lot more schooling, too. Yeah. So when I was an EMT, <laughs> I hated being told what to do, and the paramedics could tell me what to do, so I realized I had to become a paramedic so that people stopped telling me what to do. It's really it, about ego. Yeah, but it's always been one of the things that I've been most proud to say that you do and say that like my dad does this uh we were just talking my dad delivered a baby two days ago and i got that text message in the morning when i walked into my office it was the first thing i said to people um for people listening i'm sure a lot of you know there's like a, a really big drug epidemic in the northeast of the country and my father and i have had real personal conversations about some of the young kids that you've kind of seen sometimes die in front of you but then also right. the other aspect when you save them and i know that there's a kid uh who's really close to you and i think he even lost his leg or something like like so that. Was what a, was that story yeah, it was a, a case that we had we um, went to the house and it was for an overdose mm-hmm. and he was stuck in a preacher's position so his legs were underneath him and he was forward and what that does is it ends up being like a compartmental syndrome so all that lactic acid is stuck in those in the extremities of the legs. Mm-hmm. So we laid him out to start CPR and to give him Narcan. Um, and that worked. We gave him Narcan. He started breathing. But then all of a sudden, the lactic acid, the compartmental syndrome came in. And he went into a terrible different cardiac rhythms. And we ended up coding him for probably about an hour and a half. 
to get him back. And miraculously, we did get him back. Um, the downside was that he lost his leg because of the compartmental syndrome in the leg. But he, we're, we see him all the time now. And he waves to us. He's doing really well. His recovery is going well. Um, his mother always calls it his rebirth day. Yeah. Um, and she feels the leg was a small loss, a small thing to give up considering he ended up living and existing the next day. Being a paramedic is much more emotionally taxing, I think, than most people give it credit for. Yeah, including myself till recently. Yeah. Yeah. When you look back at like all the experiences, which one tips the scale further? Like the things that you weren't able to do or the people that like you couldn't save or the people that you could? I, I imagine that goes back and forth in your head a lot. So no, it actually, I wouldn't have been able to explain this very well until recently. If you take up a, a glass of water, mm-hmm. a pitcher of water, and you hold it by the handle, um, let's say it's an eight ounce glass of water, and someone says, here, hold this straight out. Yeah. You know, if you do that for a minute, it's no big deal. Uh, if you do that for an hour, it's going to hurt a little bit. If you try to do that for a day, by the end, that same glass, that same eight ounce weight is going to be unbearable and you're not going to be able to hold it. You have to put the glass down. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we're trying to teach paramedics now is that they have to put the glass down. Um, so it's not the one event. It's not the little event one way or the other. It's not the good, not the bad. It's just that cumulative thing. Yeah. Um, and the most abused words in the EMS system are, no, I'm fine, which is just a, a crock of shit. You're not fine. Basically, yeah. anytime I hear the words, I'm fine, I think it's a crock of shit, right? Right. <laughs> All right. So, you know, we're starting to get to a point now where people don't have that hero syndrome of saying, no, I'm fine, I can handle all that. Well, yeah, you can handle it emergently, but, you know, the suicide rate of paramedics is high, the alcohol and drug rate is high, mm-hmm. um, and there's a long burnout rate as far as them doing it for long periods of time. So it's something that needs to be addressed. And they're, they're starting to address it now. How long have you been a paramedic for? 30 years. That's a long time. That's a long time. It's longer than most, definitely. Is there anything that you've done in particular that's kind of, I don't want to say kept you, because I know that you've you've had ups and downs, but that has allowed you to keep going? <laughs> I'm not allowed to say money, am I? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. We discuss this a lot. I'm not really sure. You know, there's one of the problems I have with being in this industry so long is that my highs and lows don't exist like other people do anymore. I don't get real high. I don't get real low. Um, and I see that in all aspects of my life. It makes it very hard to get euphoric with things because mm-hmm. um, I've just kind of balanced them all out. Um, I forget what the initial question was here. Uh, well, we were just talking about like coping mechanisms that you might have had. Right. So that that is my coping mechanism. Just not, just it's not no big get deal. high, not get low. You, you just said the word euphoric. So... What does give you, would you say euphoricism? Euphoria. What does give you euphoria? Not much. <laughs> no. Yeah, I mean, that's a problem. I'm not saying that. So one of the reasons, you know, for those listening, I've just started changing all of my wardrobe and I started wearing these bright colors and that's very intentional. It's because I've become aware of this idea that I've gotten this flattened emotional state. So one of the things I'm doing to change that is to change my physical environment, uh-huh. you know, and you know, when I go to work every day now, I wear funky socks so that I look down and I remind myself, just don't take me so seriously. You know, when things are bad, you just look down and it's really okay. So I'm trying to change my outlook on things and change creativity and thought processes. And I figure if I do it physically first, then you can kind of 
quintessential part. Where else has that manifested? I haven't noticed you starting to. You're not like I haven't noticed any midlife crisis from it's you. It's not that, but it's it's the same thing as the uh, jug of water. You wouldn't notice it uh. because it's it's as cumulative as you, on you as it is on me. You know, Chips it's away. That slow change of chipping away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think that that's an important lesson for anybody to learn as especially when I hit 30 and I think even in my late 20s I've I've become a lot more aware of the idea of patience and the idea that working harder and more intensely doesn't necessarily make things happen faster and it's been it's it's been like hard to deal with but at the same time it's been really great because i think it allows me to enjoy the journey a little bit more because you're not necessarily trying to like get to the goal you're just trying to enjoy the journey and i just wrote a long email to the stasi crew the other day because it's the end of the year and i was kind of i was touching on that about i try a little harder these days not to necessarily look at the end result and to just try to enjoy the process and even Sometimes when I'm at work and I'm thinking like, man, I can't wait to finish this article and get this done because all the writing I have to do and I have to take a second and be like, you know what? But just like I'm writing the article regardless, like I have to write it. So I might as well enjoy the process of writing. Do you think that that's kind of what you're you're getting at or? Yeah, I guess. I mean, you have it a little bit different because you have a business bottom line at some point there where you have to enjoy the journey, but you also, the journey has to have a profit at the end. Yeah. Um, where mine doesn't doesn't have that end result where, you know, the, the journey is just, is the journey. I never have to get to a point where it's the end. And a lot of the people that are paramedics, they do this industry because they don't want to be nurses because they don't want that long-term commitment to a patient. They want to go in, they want to be the, they want to get caught get in the out. eye of the storm, deal with all that drama and chaos absorb the chaos give it to someone else a little bit calmer than how they got it but they don't want that long-term emotional with it do you okay this might be completely far-fetched but do you think that whirlwind of chaos is something that draws a lot of the people in all of them really you think there's like an addiction absolutely yeah you get dispatched for something that's just a a monstrous event or you know there's i don't want to keep using the word chaos but there's something there you know, your brain immediately starts thinking, how can I fix it? How can I restructure this so that it's mm-hmm. brought out of the world of chaos? Which is, is it the actual event or is it when the event's over and the rush afterwards that you get hooked on? See, I don't get a rush afterward anymore. I think it's the event. It has to be, it's the event. And, you know, I, for again, for those listening, you have to understand, I grew up in like an EMT, paramedic, firefighter type thing, so... When I hear these stories, I think of scanners going off, yeah. and I think of everybody at backyard barbecues hanging out, drinking beers, and then the whole entire party just stops, and the beers get put on the table, and you go fight fires, and, and you go, and that moment is so familiar to me, and I, I try to like explain to what that's like when you hear those scanners, and it's almost like your ears perk up. <laughs> and everybody just knows that like there's some there's some things that we have to go do and i know that there's a lot of paramedics in the world that feel that way and i've talked to a few of them and i i, I guess i just have a special spot in my heart uh for it and i think you're right i think that people really start needing to have the conversation because it's very similar to police you know it's easy to look back and like say all the things that they could do better but i think it's really easy to forget that there's like a real emotional taxation that comes along with like doing that job so one of the things that we talked about 
last week when we were discussing the stress of the job mm -hmm. is that when you talk about a first responder in general, um, if you look at the populace is 100%, the whole general populace, first responders are only exposed to about 19% of the populace, where someone else in business is exposed to an 80% of the populace. And when you say populace, what do you mean? People in general of okay. the world. Um, because we just have a very small structured thing that we respond to, a small group. Mm -hmm. And of those 19%, not all of them are real happy. And, you know, not a lot of them are saying, it's great that you're here. Mm -hmm. You know, they're happy we're there to help them and things like that. But it's not always a, a happy event. So that becomes very cumulative. We don't have exposure to this. Because you're not getting like the gratitude and the thank right. yous. Yeah. I guess that's true. You don't really think of it, but you're probably dealing with relatively unhealthy people that might be a little bit grumpy. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I don't know how else to say that. Right. And I know that my opinion is a little bit skewed because I've been doing it for, for so for long. A long time. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that's what I had said. That's why I'm trying to do the whole change my environment because mm -hmm. I'm cognizant of it. Well, this is a conversation that I love having. Um, for anybody that may be listening that's involved in the world of emergency medicine, um, if there's any like other resources that you want me to share, uh, this is a spot that hits my heart. Uh, you can email it to me, Tim at Stadzi. And Pop, thank you very much for sharing some of that stuff. I have uh, a whole bunch of questions that, that me and Alex kind of went through. Um, that's a tag team, huh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so when... These are just questions that I'm just going to read off. And mind you, I haven't read these either. So I don't necessarily know if they're going to jump out at you. When was the first time you felt like, quote, a man? Wow, that's a tough question. I don't know. I'll let you know when it comes. <laughs> no. Um, well, on that, though, you and I have had this conversation a lot where you never actually feel like you grow up, right? Right. Because I remember being a kid looking at adults at the time going like, man, I wonder what it feels like to be that way. But I still feel exactly right. the same. I still feel like I'm 18. <laughs> um, uh, more than likely it would have been back in some of those child-rearing years um, where I had to do something very specific as far as security of the household or the family or yeah. an event would have done it. Cause you know, I had to become a man pretty young. I was 20 when I had to step up. I feel bad saying that cause some people go into the military and they're stepping up at 18, but mm -hmm. from, for what my environment was for my group, that was very young. You know, everyone else was in college and I was raising kids. Yeah. Um, so somewhere in there, maybe the birth of you might've been it. Okay. Might've been that moment. Uh, I'm really interested about this question because I just wrote uh, an article about like principles and philosophy. So what are three things you really stand for? Um, compassion mm -hmm. is huge. You have to be a compassionate person. Um, and that compassion has to, has to roll over to the community and to people. You have to be compassionate to the humanities. Being non-judgmental. I don't think you should judge anything by what you've heard or what it's supposed to be. You've got to experience it before you can judge. Um, and one of the things we say all the time to patients, or I say all the time, is it doesn't cost extra to just be nice. Mm -hmm. You know, it's okay to just be nice. You know, one of my pet peeves that drives me crazy is we add adjectives to people where if we're walking down the street, we'll say, oh, did you see that, that short black woman? 
And I'm like, no, I saw the short woman. Why do I have to add the other adjective? Um, so a label you're saying? Labeling. Okay. Yeah, and we label all the time, whether it's by race, ethnicity, religion, you know, and when we do that labeling, then we start automatically assuming some parts of that person. But we have no idea. It's like when we, when we say Republican or Democrat, it immediately gives us a label to what that person's like. I feel the same way about that stuff. Right. I, it drives me crazy. Yeah, and especially because there's a... There's an expression that I like. Um, some psychologist said to me once, he said, the world is gray. And it's very difficult to go super far on people because I, I think to myself, I'm definitely socially like a pretty liberal person. I think everybody in our family is. But when I would say that I'm a liberal, the standard response is, oh, you mean like the snowflake kind of stuff and like universal health care. But f- like fiscally, I'm a little bit more conservative in type of that stuff so like that's just a really specific example as to people are complicated because i have on the other end quote-unquote republican friends who don't have any problem with gay people or don't have any problem with like other races but if you just say that person's a republican basically what you're doing is you're just kind of labeling their beliefs correct you know and people are, are so complicated and that's it. Like you can't go too black and white on stuff. You know, the world is gray. People are gray. Everybody's like a kind of weird mix of a different beliefs that are all dependent on like where they come from and, and, and how they were raised. It's good to hear you say that because, uh, I've always been, I mean, our family's not perfect, but I've always been really, really proud to know that we take time to listen to people and like understand what it is that they're saying and more importantly like why they're saying that because more than likely if i were that person and i was in the exact circumstances that they're in i would probably feel the same way too yeah so one of the words you used there that's really important is the idea of listening yeah and we're never taught how to listen i went to a class just recently on community paramedicine and that it was a 40-hour class and 20 hours of that was changing what we do as paramedics and the way we work because we do everything very fast and we'll ask you a million questions. Are you a diabetic? Do you have a heart condition? Have you ever had a stroke? Um, And we want a one-word answer. But if you stop and you learn to listen and you just ask a question and then sit back and use either body language or little nudges, Mm -hmm. you'll end up getting a lot more information out of the person than in doing firing questions at them. And so I started doing that and it makes such a big difference and it's just all about listening and being patient. Yeah, well, I think in that particular response, it it must be difficult to be patient and be fast at the same time. But I do totally agree with you. I think Jules and I were just having this conversation the other day that, like, personally, I think that a lot of the problems that people with, like, the high levels of anxiety in the, in the country and probably the world and, like, a lot of the divide that we have right now is simply a lack of listening. People don't actually take time to listen to like what it is that this person is saying and like why are they saying that they just hear one thing and then they make an immediate assumption is like oh this person must be this yeah and a lot of times that this person must be that word is wrong yeah so we have this concept that it has to be right or wrong Mm -hmm. you know and then people with that notion that i have to be right stop listening because i'm going to be right and i can always win the argument you'll hear it say well i don't lose arguments yeah that's your mentality then you've lost every argument because you're not listening to what they're saying and i also think it has a lot to do with like your team 
You know, it's like I'm on this team, so anything that the other team says yeah. is just wrong. Sure. You know, and I think you're totally right because what happens is, what was it that we were talking about the other day? Um, uh, bias. Shit. What was that phrase? Um, it had to do with confirmation, confirmation bias. bias. Yeah, where you just and, and you know we don't need to get too into this, but the way the Facebook algorithm works and like you're only surrounded by people and information that Facebook already knows that you agree with, you know? So right. it's just like a feed of information that makes you comfortable. And people are like not, I say people in a very wide view, like I'm not perfect by any means, but I think that collectively we don't listen to other viewpoints enough to make us uncomfortable and potentially give ourselves the opportunity to like change our own viewpoint. Right. And our social media is doing it where it's limiting that even more. Yeah. You know, so one of the one of the reasons Tim and I discussed this was my wife had made a comment about some political it doesn't really matter what it was, some political event. And she said that, you know, the whole country is really up in arms about this. And I said to her that I've seen the exact opposite. So it came up in discussion as to how she could have exposure on one side and I have the exposure on the other. Mm -hmm. And we came up with this whole idea of confirmation. Because you don't bias. use Facebook. Right. <laughs> That's why I don't use it anymore. I've gone really back and forth and you know i would almost kind of like your advice on this because a lot of my business and my industry has to do with social media but i can always look at it from a real objective marketing position where it's simply like metrics who did you reach who did you uh persuade to act in a certain way and truth be told i don't spend a whole lot of time personally on facebook like i have a real sort of business relationship with it but i've i'm a much much happier person the less time i spend on social media do you really see that becoming a problem with american society and like i think it, especially young people or do you think it's something that's going to kind of phase out no i think it's gonna get worse and i don't even think it's young people i think i work with co-workers where i'll literally have a discussion i look over and they're on their phone and they're reading facebook i had a really relative discussion with a guy at work yesterday not yesterday this week um and right as i was making my point he hit a button and a video started playing on his phone and i was so pissed i'm like are you serious so i think the amount of time that is disrupted by people with facebook and different social media apps they just don't engage at all anymore and that's exactly what we just talked about with the listening right because he's somewhere else right he's somewhere else entirely <laughs> yeah yeah. And even if you're just looking down to look at something, you're still not engaging. You're still not, you know, they say the brain can't do two things at one time. It can't. And it can't concentrate on two things at one time. And everyone says, oh, I can multitask. Well, no, you can't. It no. has to stop and start. Yeah, it's physiologically impossible. Right. So, you know, when you're, those, you know, they might be a stop that's a millisecond long. Mm -hmm. But it's still a stop and you can feel it. You know the difference. Yeah. So well, I, I think it's going to get worse. I, man, I think so too, but... I'm also a little bit optimistic about it. There's a guy named Scott Galloway. Um, he's a NYU professor at CERN and he does business and he runs this really cool YouTube channel called L2. And um, he spends a lot of time studying what he calls four, which is Google, Facebook, Amazon, and Apple. And he's been doing a whole lot of studies. And I think the people are just starting to have the conversation about like technology may not be this kind of saving grace that we all think it is that there's pros and cons to everything. And I think people are really starting to see the cons. So anyway, 
that's kind of a rabbit hole conversation. I got like two or three more questions to go through. Because it is Christmas and we got stuff to do, right, Pop? And <laughs> with presents to open. <laughs> um, okay, this is a really, really cool one because I know that this is something that you struggle with. What's your strategy for taking major risks? I don't take risks. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's, why That's I easy. Asked. Don't take them. <laughs> I am an atrocious risk taker. You know, you again, you and I have had this conversation before, and I'm interested on your viewpoint on it. I, I take a pretty good amount of risks. Right. I, and I guess with mom, I don't necessarily see her as a risk taker. No. Where do you think that, that came from with me? I don't know. I, you know, you were certainly not exposed to it because we didn't do very many risky things. Um, a little I, I closer, think Pop? With, I think that with you, it ended up being uh, forced upon you because you ended up doing your entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. um, and people that are entrepreneurs aren't going to do well if, they're not, if they don't take risks. You know, that's just a fundamental notion with innovation and entrepreneurism and success is that you have to take a risk. Um, I think that's where you were forced into doing it. I think so, too. Looking back, I always had a little bit of impulse stuff, though. I mean, the skateboarding, you know, that kind of thing. If there was something that like could potentially hurt me, I, I was always a little bit inclined to do it. I don't know. I've thought about it a lot. I don't necessarily have an answer i just thought it See, was i don't mind that kind of risk i'm afraid of anything that might have to do with financial risk that's the yeah. scary stuff yeah physical risk doesn't bother me yeah but stability risk bothers me i know i, I kind of like it though yeah, it's like no. this fun little rush about it okay we got two more what does intention mean to you uh, intention yeah what does living like with deliberate act living with intention mean to you living with intention well, let's see, I'd have to translate that. So living for things being deliberate. Your intention. I don't know if I create intentions or if I let them create me. Where I'm not sure that I predetermine decisions I'm gonna make as opposed to letting society letting life letting make life decisions happen. on me. Yeah. And you know, one of the courses I took recently, this was a big part of our topic of conversation was, you know, not making a decision is is a decision. So it's just a matter of whether you want to be proactive huh. in your decision-making or if you want to let things come to you. Okay, and to f sort of start wrapping this up, I know another big period of your life has been school recently. And I know I've told you a gazillion times how cool I think it is that you're going back to get your degree. Um, I never actually asked you what... When was the moment where you decided, like, you know what, I want to do this? Lisa and I were looking at the idea of retirement. Okay. And, you know, do I want to stay up here for another 15 years? Um, and then, you know, for me, it's always about having options. I want to at least have an option. Low-risk option, obviously. Yeah. But I want to have an option. And then where I am with EMS right now, you know, I have so much background in operations and doing it. I have 20 years of background with major company doing OSHA compliance. Um, so I'm very good at team building, team management. I can, mm -hmm. I can bring people together. I just watched the TED Talk last week where it's a professor and he talks about making people jump. Can you get them to jump off the cliff with you? Um, and for the most part, I've always been able to get people to jump off the cliff with me. That's why I was very successful in the safety industry. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm at a point now where without a degree, I'm not going to be allowed to be the person on the edge of the cliff. You know, I'm not going to be the one who has the leadership right to say this is the way we're going to go. And unfortunately, it's going to take a, a degree to do that. And the process has been a lot of fun. 
you know, learning is a great, great adventure. It's fun. Learning on a time frame is a pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. You know, when they say this has to be done by this date, and this There's time. deadlines. And deadlines suck. Do but without them, I wouldn't do it. Have you ever second-guessed it? No, not at all. You never no. second-guessed going back to school? What's that? No, I, I second-guess having to spend all the money and going back to school. Okay. You know, I do that whole financial thing. If it's going to cost me $30,000 and I invested $30,000 over 10 years. Where am I going to get it back? Where am I going to get it back? Yeah. Which, which one has been your favorite class you you love i've noticed you love talking about the entrepreneurial classes yeah i think so the whole thing is organizational structure and leadership okay so all of it goes down that that road and i have a professor whose name is stephen gallagher um and i've had three classes with him and his are just fantastic the way he does them is he doesn't use a textbook he individually researches which articles are relative to the topic and then he builds them so that by the end of the eight weeks, they're all relative. And you think it's so random, like each one. It's like, what does this have to do with last week? And then when it's all done, it all you kind of it. is it's magical and it hits. Comes and together. He does such a great job of doing the That's the guy you've told me about a bunch of times, right? Yeah. I'd really like to meet him. Yeah, we're supposed to be going out to dinner hopefully this week. That'd be cool. Yeah, he's a great guy. All right, last question, Pop. To preface this question, I think it's important that people know that I, myself definitely and I guess I could probably speak for Alex and you and mom and basically the starters in general are people that are always pretty tough on ourselves um, I think that that's a good thing and a bad thing because it kind of keeps us going a little further but it's a bad thing because you never actually get the opportunity to enjoy the things that you've done right so with that being said I want to know what is your most proudest moment or accomplishment in your life so far if you could like hang your hat on one thing on when one it's all thing? said and done, yeah. I don't think I have one one glamour moment, mm-hmm. one big one. Again, you know, I've discussed this a lot. I think there's so many different chapters to life that there would have to be many, many periods. You know, it has to be like a great character writer. Each part of life is one section of character writing. Um, so what's relative 30 years ago that would be a highlight isn't going to be relative to today. So I don't think there's a specific one, you know, and then there's so many ones that you, know, you would have to obligatorily throw out there. My kids, how well they've done. Um, Alex getting her degree was always a big deal to me, probably because I didn't have it. So it was important that my kids had that it. That was a fun day when she graduated. I screamed so loud. That was fun. Yeah, that was cool. Um, and obviously your ability to excel without the degree uh-huh. and show how much better you can do if you just surround yourself with people that really know what they're doing and you'd be the leader of that group is obviously very, is very successful. Mm-hmm. So there's great pride for me on that part. Um, so I don't know what specific thing I do know. I got it. It just hit me. Okay. Um, I introduced to the Stoddart world, the words, I love you. Um, nobody said that until one day my dad was very sick in the hospital and I was seeing a therapist and I said to the therapist, I just want my dad so much to know I love him. And he said, well, just say it. I said, we don't say it. So, I'm sorry, it was a her. And she said, well, my advice is just blurt it out. And every time you think it, just blurt it out. And eventually, it won't be uncomfortable. So I started doing it. And I would just blurt it out. And he said, I love you back. And I thought, oh, wow, that was weird. That's easy. So I did it like five or six times. And then it became natural. Um, then I started doing it with Moira. Then I did it with Frank. Doug's the hard one. He's still the hard one to get it out to. Yeah, for me too. Yeah, I'm still in the building phase of blurting with him. It's been like 10 years though. Right. <laughs> right. But I brought those words to the Stoddard household. So I that think that's a really good accomplishment. Moment. And 
I I say I I end pretty much every phone call, even a lot of my employees and my good friends, which is like love you. Yeah. And then that's it. And love you is very different than I love you. Sure, but like I'm just talking about in the context when you're hanging up the phone, you know, sometimes you're just saying it, but the the point is like those words I love you have never been I don't want to say have never, but aren't as uncomfortable for me as I think I've seen they've been for other people and I know I definitely have you and mom to thank for that. And I feel bad because I have some coworkers that I hear them talking to their spouses and the end of the conversation is just, all right, bye. And I'm like, oh my God, that's so sad. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll challenge them on them. I'm like, why wouldn't you say I love you at the end of that? What's the, why? Oh, they know. I'm like, well, how would they know? If you're not telling them, how do they know? Yeah. Well, I love you, pop. <laughs> I love you too. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much uh, for doing this. Thank you to everybody, again, who's listened to my podcast and has sent me really cool emails and kind words about what I'm doing. Uh, Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah to anybody listening. I guess we're going to release this one on um, the 26th. So uh, when this episode airs, it'll be after Christmas. I hope everybody really enjoyed their holiday. Um, Dad, I think you're the coolest person ever. You're my hero. Uh, I love you to death. and, uh, And thank you so much. All right, guys. I'll talk to you next time. Bye.